Hello and welcome to Fans, the podcast hosted by me, Sachin Nakrani, in which I speak to people I like, find interesting or both about being football fans. And joining me for this episode to talk all things Sunderland is not one but two fans of the club. And really, they're a lot more than that, given they're also father and daughter and key figures in one of the greatest periods in Sunderland's history. Well, one of them is, the other just happened to be there at the time. It's Malcolm and Nicky Crosby. Malcolm, Nicky, how are you? Very well. Thank you, for, thank you very much for allowing us to, to do this and allowing me to uh, catch up with my, my old man as well. I'm, I'm putting this down as family minute. <laughs> Was that your sneaky plan to kind of uh, re- yeah, find an excuse to talk to your dad, yeah, uh, having not done so for so long? As, as we... the old man bit, but uh, it's good to talk to her, yeah. Yeah, well, we were talking just before we started. It's um, yeah, Nikki's not doing a particularly good job of staying in touch with you, Malcolm. Is she? Was it ten years since she last spoke to you? You were saying <laughs> ten minutes. I thought, <laughs> we speak on, on, I don't know, every other day, probably. Do you reckon, Dad? We do, but normally your mum steps in, and then uh, you don't get a word in edgeways after that. So you know, I try and get at least a minute's worth. And then that's it. I'm I'm sort of shoved in the corner then. Oh, Me and Dad no, usually... We do speak to each other on a regular basis, yeah. Yeah, we usually talk a bit about football and then it's about babies and cooking and recipes with mum and all of that stuff. But me and Dad usually get about five minutes on what we've watched that weekend and then it's it's back to the normal family chat. Or, or I get a personal call if Nicola wants some information about player or manager or so all right how you dad you know when i'm okay for 20 minutes then Are you, do you know when she's tapping you up for information do you know when it's one of those type of conversations that's like here we go she's going to be tapping me up in a second for uh bits of yeah. info yeah i know because <laughs> i always get hi dad how are you and soon i'll say okay what do you want there we go my older brother's the same as well he's an agent yeah. So if I want an interview with one of his players, I basically call him like, hey, bruv, how's it going? <laughs> and he's literally like, what do you want? Just let's wait for the chase. Like, let's not beat around the bush. Come on, who do you need to speak to? So, yeah, they, they see right through me. They know they know exactly what I'm after the session. You're so predictable. Um, <laughs> excellent. Well, look, I'm, so, I'm, I'm ludicrously excited about this. Um, I, I think we should just sort of explain how it came about as well, because it came about in... Um, slightly um, unique uh, and for me absolutely brilliant circumstances I think it was like last December I was in the room I'm recording now which is my spare room at home where I since lockdown I've I've spent an awful lot of my time working from home from and I was in my room not doing much doing a bit of work or whatever uh, direct message dropped on my uh, on my phone via Twitter it's from Nikki uh, we hadn't spoken before we followed each other on Twitter we hadn't spoken yeah. before and I think I just plugged my then latest episode of this podcast which was with Kelly Cates uh, the fantastic Kelly Cates. And you said you'd be up for coming on to talk about Sunderland. And you asked if you wanted your dad to come on because he <laughs> managed Sunderland in the 1992 FA Cup final. And I, I'm not exaggerating. I nearly fell out my chair with excitement <laughs> because I remember that game so well. Um, I'm a Liverpool fan and um, uh, I'm 39. So in 1992, I was 11. And really, that's 
the first FA Cup final I remember Liverpool playing in eight, 1989 when they beat Everton. I was I was eight. So I was very young. I have sort of very sketchy memories. But I remember the 92 final so well. I remember the build-up. remember the run. Liverpool getting there. remember the game itself. And of course, then I remember Malcolm because he was the opposition manager. I remember him leading out the team alongside Ronnie Moran. Uh, leading out the Sunderland team, obviously, as Ronnie Moran led out the Liverpool team. So I've got incredibly strong memories that game. I remember being terrified of John Byrne because he'd scored in every round. I was convinced he was going to score in the final. We had to keep John Byrne quiet. So uh, memories of that run are so really, really um, strong for me. But for you guys, they must be incredibly strong. As Sunderland fans yourselves involved, involved in that period. So we, that's what we're going to talk about for this podcast. We'll focus on Sunderland more broadly as well later on. But we're going to focus mainly on that on on that period the run to the 1992 FA Cup final and everything that was involved in that um but before we do yeah I want to talk to you Nikki about your life so um you're coming to us from Doha the capital of Qatar uh, you work there as a as a broadcaster for being sports the global sports broadcaster um so yeah how long, how long have you been out there uh, and what what's life like there generally but also specifically during a global pandemic the one we're in at the moment yeah so so I was working in London um, for Premier League Productions and on the same day I got offered a job full-time there. I was freelancing and I got offered this job in, in Doha working with um, a man called John T. Whitehead setting up what was then Al Jazeera Sport and we were a tiny, tiny team. Limited rights at the time. I think we had the FA Cup and La Liga um, and he said, do you just want to come along? I'm so sorry if you hear the, the baby crying at any point. The <laughs> No worries. Other trying to get him down for a nap, so it could be a bit chaotic. But yeah, so I, I remember it was Christmas and it was Boxing Day at the house, the house that Dad's sat in right now, and um, I couldn't decide what to do. Do I stay in London or do I move out here and to the complete unknown? I've never touched foot in the Middle East, and we. I just said, you know what, you lot decide. Put it to a family vote, and I had the cousins, the brothers, the aunties the uncles grandparents and I said you know what you guys have to decide for me so I said what shall I do and everyone in the room put their hand up and said move to Doha take a leap of faith go for it apart from my grandma who said no she didn't want me (laughs) she wanted me where she could see me so I got on a plane I said I'll do a year I'll see how it is and here I am 10 years later um, just really so happy in this job because I get to do something that I think is quite rare and it's work on the Premier League, work on the Champions League, work on the FA Cup, work on European football. I do a bit of tennis, the, you know, the women's tennis is coming next week, then the Federer's in town and I've travelled the world with this gig. Um, so that's why I'm still here. I just absolutely love it. And yeah, the opportunities are coming in thick and fast and be, because of the pandemic, really, there's so many matches yeah. I'm now part of the, mm. the live presenting team. So I, lo- I love it. And um, the lifestyle just really suits me. I'm very outdoorsy. I don't like being cold. So, <laughs> you know, I get outside a lot and run around and play a bit of tennis and do my exercise classes and just have a really, really enjoyable life. I have great friends. And you mentioned the pandemic. Um, so it was really cut our lockdown very early. And it was all very restrictive. Schools were closed, restaurants were closed, gyms were closed, cinemas, everything. Um, very limited amount of people in the workplace. Um, the pandemic came, they shut everything down. And that coincided with me giving birth to my first child. And it was it was quite difficult because mum and dad were meant to come over and they were meant to help me out. 
And the whole time I was pregnant, I was like, I'll be absolutely fine with this because mum and dad are coming over. They know yeah. what they're doing. I've done it three times. <laughs> that didn't happen. So yeah, I was in a, it was, it was weird. It was, um, I was in this bubble where I couldn't go anywhere, but it was absolutely fine because me and my husband had this newborn little tiny thing to take care of. Um, and it's strangely, it worked out quite well, but now, um, things have opened up again and the numbers are going up again. Um, okay. So it's, it's a really, it's a strange one at the moment. We're kind of maybe waiting for another lockdown or mm. a bit more heavy restrictions, but you know, it's, it's been good. I've been to the park this morning with the dog and the baby. I went and saw some friends last night for, for a quick drink and yeah, it's, it's fine. I feel it's, it's actually, I feel sorry for the guys at home. I don't like to tell them when I'm going out. <laughs> Yeah, we are. We're in some sort of Blade Runner like Armageddon here, all yeah. trapped in our ho- homes. Um, Mark, and that must be tough for you. You've got a new, a new grandchild, but you haven't been out, been able to go out and to to to, uh, to see him. I mean, obviously, you will do that at some point, I guess. But it's all Zoom causes at the moment with your your newest grandchild. Well, we most years we've gone over mm. uh, see Nicola and Chris, and uh, you know it's it's a it's a good place to to go if you even want a holiday, but. Obviously, we haven't been able to see them, but last year, I can't remember what date it was, Nick, but you came over with young George, didn't you? Yeah, we got yeah. over in the summer. Oh, okay. Great. So they stayed with us for two months, I think it was, wasn't it? Well, like, I, I actually ended up be, It was supposed there. to be a month. <laughs> when we went to the Heathrow Airport to see them off, poor George wasn't allowed on the plane. So then... I think she planned this. She came back and she had another month with us. Why so, wasn't he allowed on the plane? So, he didn't have a, an official document, wasn't it? Yeah. Right. I messed, well, I couldn't mess up. I was told that because he was under six months that he could he was allowed to travel on my visa, which was yeah. a more specific thing with COVID. And then when I got to the airport, they said, actually, he needs one for himself. So I had to apply for him, which meant oh, okay. we had this really emotional goodbye. <laughs> and then I was like, OK, I'm coming back home. Uh, <laughs> Fantastic. And then well, I was packed. The Heathrow, though, isn't it? You know, we enjoyed the drive. that drive. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was, it, I mean, it, was, it, was, um, it wasn't really upsetting, to be honest, because it was quite nice that they were coming back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we didn't know how long they'd how long they were going to be because you didn't yeah. know you'd have to wait for the for the uh, visa did you mm. yeah and it's mad mum and dad have had three new grandchildren in 11 months wow. during this global pandemic one's in doha one's in new york one's in essex and you just haven't really had as much time that they are the best grandparents in the entire world and they haven't really got to flex their skills um <laughs> as much as us lot would like. I want to lie in Sashin. I need I need that. So I did do it. I did that. I slept in for two months and just palmed <laughs> the baby off the dad in the mornings. Brilliant. Yeah. It worries me when she says we're the best grandparents. I'm thinking, right, what's she after? Oh, well you know you know what she's like, Malcolm. You, you've had the phone you've had the phone calls, haven't you? You know what she's like. The next question now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, that that's very sad about yeah, the situation you're in with, with your with your grandkids. So I guess a lot of people I mean, millions, literally millions of people are in that situation. It's really, really difficult. Um I mean Malcolm, you, you lived I mean you all lived in Kuwait, didn't you, for a little while. So you've had experience of living in the Middle East. I'm, I'm right, Anna. Yeah. Uh, 1986, took yeah. out Kuwait, three children. I think Nicola was about six months, weren't you? Mm. So we went out to Kuwait. 
Yeah. You were working out there, weren't you? Yeah, yeah I, you... Went, um, I went as a coach, um, mm. 20s coach, and um, first year there, it uh, wasn't too good. The manager, ex-Chelsea manager, Bobby Campbell, he he took me out there. Um, he got the sack, so then I left the club that I was with, but I went and joined another club who was uh, managed by George Armstrong, the ex-Arsenal player. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I took their under-20s team and we won the league and it was fantastic working under George Armstrong. Then I got offered a job at Sunderland as a youth coach and I still had another year left in Kuwait, but I decided I wanted to come back, take half the wage that I was getting at Sunderland <laughs> which didn't impress the wife too much there was no way I wasn't going to be joining Sunderland you know yeah. and Dennis Smith was the manager who I'd played with under him when I was at York City he was my manager you know I was I went from youth coach and took the reserves then in the first team and so it was a it was a good decision in the in the long term it was a great decision that I made yeah well it was an amazing decision let's let's get on to that because the 1992 FA Cup Final run was a, as, as I said at the start, you know, a, a huge moment, a great moment in Sunderland's history. The last time they reached an FA Cup final, so coming up to thirty years now, uh, be twenty nine in May, and then thirteen May uh, next year. Uh, it was a remarkable whirlwind story, and for you, Mark, and really a defining moment as well. Given not only what you achieved getting Sunderland to the final, but as you touched on, it's your boyhood club. Um, you're from South Shields, which I looked on a map earlier because I wasn't 100 percent sure where South Shields. I've got to be honest with you, but coastal town by the River Tyne, uh, yeah. so roughly equal distance, I believe, between Newcastle and Sunderland. Is it, is it mainly a sort of Sunderland place, no, South Shields, or half yeah, and half? When you, went, when you went to school, you were either a Newcastle fan or a Sunderland yeah. fan. So it was. It was a choice and, um, you know, my family, my dad, my, my brother, they, they were some supporters. So I just followed them and uh, I'm glad I did. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you went, am I right? I think you went to the 1973 final as well. The famous Sunderland uh, Leeds final. Sunderland won 1-0. Bobby Stoke in Portfield, Jimmy Montgomery and all that. You, you were there at Wembley. What, do, what are your memories of that game? Well, my memories, um, the night before I was a player at Aldershot, although I wasn't in the team. And I was all the shirt got promoted the night before at Stockport. So I was part of that squad, mm. only 18. And uh, we stayed in Manchester that night after getting a draw at Stockport and getting promoted. And then we came back on the coach next morning. I jumped off the coach at Watford. I got the train up to Wembley. I met my best mate. We, we then went and watched Sunderland win the FA Cup. So you could imagine it was quite a heavy weekend, really. I can imagine, yeah. <laughs> quite a 24 hours for you. Blimey. You know, when I look um, back at that game, you know, it was fantastic that Sunderland won the cup. I mean, they didn't really get a kick. <laughs> you know, yeah. Leeds were just so dominant in the yeah. game. It didn't matter because it's like anything, you know, you've won. And uh, I just had a fantastic weekend. I really did. Can imagine. I mean, there's a, it's incredible parallel in the way, isn't it? Because '92 was Sunderland's first FA Cup final since '73. They played in the '85 Milk Cup final in the 1990 Second Division Player final, lost both to Norwich and Swindon. But there were these amazing parallels that Sunderland in '73 and in '92 were a struggling Second Division team, and they were facing kind of a giant of the First Division, Leeds in '73, Liverpool in '92. So you going into the '92 final, you I presume you're aware of that parallel. It must have felt quite uh, significant for you, having been at the '73 final. Well, it, it was great to actually um, to make the final. Yeah. 
but there'd been a lot of hassle getting there because we were struggling in the league. Yeah. So the final took a little bit of a went on the back burner a little bit because we were so concerned on having to stay up and we were playing so many games. We were so far behind in our fixtures. I think for two weeks we played like a Saturday, a Monday, a Thursday and a Saturday. Okay. Which is like a tall order. So yeah. you have to change the team and we needed to stay up. Obviously, once we, once we got the point that kept us up, then it was like full on for the cup final. I do think... Um, it was it was always going to be a tough final for us, you know. We were a division below. We were playing a top team in Liverpool. Who I'm not a supporter of Liverpool, but I've always loved the the club because of the people that work there. They've always had great people work there, and I worked with Roy Evans at Swindon, who was a fantastic mm. fella. All these people at Liverpool, they were always fantastic, you know. When you were a coach or whatever, so um, once we got our heads round it, and we were there, it was all about now, right, how do we win it? Which was always going to be a tall order for us. But, you know, we always we always had that belief that we could win it. Yeah, absolutely. Well we'll get into the we'll get into talking about the final in more detail later. But just to go back to the very start then. So you appointed Sunderland's caretaker manager in December ninety one, nineteen ninety one, following the sacking of, of Dennis Smith. The club was seventeenth in the second division at the time, which is the championship now for anyone any younger listeners. Um and I I've read interviews with you and you said it was it was to some extent a dis- difficult decision for you uh, to take the job because you were so close to Dennis. You, you said before you worked with him since you were a player. Um, but I guess there was simply no way you could turn the, the, the caretaker job down given, as you said, you're a Sunderland supporter and this is your boyhood club. Well, it was a difficult decision because I felt that I was Dennis had brought me in a, in the end as like first team coach. So I'm working with Dennis and I am after, I don't know how many games, four games or whatever, Dennis gets the sack and... Um, I was in that frame of mind that I, you know, I was quite willing to leave with Dennis because I'm as responsible as he was. Um, and to be fair to Dennis Smith, he said, no, you'd be silly to, to leave. You should take the role on. And at the time, I was angry um, because I felt for, for the manager. I was angry, but fair play, you know, me being a bit daft, I think Dennis sort of put a little bit of sense into my head and said, look, give it a go. Mm. And... I give it a go, and uh, you know I was fortunate that um, the results were pretty good afterwards. Nikki, I mean, how old are you at this stage? You're five or six, I think. Uh, five or five or six. Strange. I mean, one one element of this story that we should mention, Sashin, is that when we moved from Kuwait to Sunderland, like Dad said, you know, he, we took the family took a pay cut for him to move to Sunderland. So, as a bit of a way to make a bit of extra money, my parents ran the Sunderland Youth Hostel at the time. Yeah, I was going to come yeah. on to this. This sounds fascinating. Yeah, do you want to get into yeah. this? It sounds remarkable. A remarkable existence for you, for you at the time. So it's a bit of a mad one. So if you can imagine, I was a young girl just starting school, but I essentially had about 20 older brothers running around the house <laughs> because there was all these young footballers from all over the UK. Well, actually, Dad, did Kevin Ball live with us for a bit as well? I think when he moved to, yeah. to the East, he said, I don't want to, he missed his family. So he said, I'm just going to stay in the hostel for a bit. And he took my room. I remember. <laughs> I, I didn't mind too much because he had this little pet blue budgie that he brought with him. And I, I used to, it was really cool. I was like, oh, as long as he brings the budgie. <laughs> so, yeah, we had this crazy existence where 
we lived in the, the Sunderland Youth Hostel. My mum used to, you know, make sure the young players were fed and looked after and they'd tell them off if they snuck out the back, the back that we had this like fire escape, didn't we, at the back if they all went for a <laughs> night out. Um, so I used to have this wonderful existence where I would play footy after school with these boys. I'd go fishing, would watch Neighbours and Home and Away, the Kylie Jason era. And we just had this like crazy childhood, really, didn't we? Well, it came about because I'd been at the club about two years, youth coach, I think I was. And the lady who ran the hostel, she just sort of did a moonlight flit. She just cleared off. Really? Wow. Place empty. And we had about 14 players living there. And uh, Dennis, who's been a a big influence in my life, Dennis Smith, he said, why uh, why doesn't Carol, does she fancy running a hostel? And then you don't have to travel from York. Mm. You're in... A beautiful big building we had, mm. facing the sea, right opposite the seaside beach. It was it was a lovely place. And um, Carol came up, looked at it. Yeah, I'll do that. And the club were very good, you know. It was a uh, Carol got paid for doing the job, and we lived there, sort of rent free. And it was actually great. It wasn't great for me because mm. I had the players all day, <laughs> and then I'd come home and they're all sat there. <laughs> I'm like, oh, here we go. I'm seeing them non-stop, do you know? Yeah, I mean? can't get away from them. Yeah. You can't, bad enough when you want to see, having to see your kids that much. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I had, like, at the time, when I, when I worked it out, I had about 15 kids. Yeah. <laughs> so I, had these... own, I had my own three, and then I had the other 12 or 13, yeah. whatever it was. And, uh, you know, we had problems along the way, obviously, with them. But there were a great bunch of lads, you know. They were really good lads. And we had, I think, Brian Atkinson was living there who played in the team. Brian was living there with us. Martin Gray, who was on the fringe, you know, he was living there. Warren Hawke. I think we were there, was it three years, four years, three years? Yeah. Well, we were definitely there when Den was working because I used to remember sometimes my bedroom. It was like if you imagine a big townhouse. Mm. So the living room was on the second floor. And my little bedroom, which Kevin Ball took over for a while, that was next to the living room. And I'd always remember because Dennis has got this booming stoke. Well, he's got the stoke accent, but the most booming voice. And you and Dan used to come back after away games and sit and probably polish off a lovely bottle of red wine. (laughs) And their conversations would get louder and louder talking (laughs) about the game. And I used to just... It'd be a school night or whatever. I'd have nursery, but I used to just walk in and I'd go and curl up on Dad's lap and listen listen into their post match oh. analysis as a as a little girl. And they'd never tell me to go back to bed. They'd, they'd just let me sit there and and listen in on their chat. So I think that's maybe one of the reasons why I work in this industry. I've never been able to escape these footballing <laughs> conversations well, ever. You respected your opinion, Nick, on exactly. how you're wrong. Yeah. Same we don't anymore, but yeah, good then. No. No. <laughs> I mean, Nicola, did you you must have had kids in your class who were Sunderland fans who, when they realised where you lived, they were just desperate to come see this kind of magical Sunderland kingdom you lived in. You must have had so many friends coming around to see you, or wanting to come and see you. I think my brothers had that a lot more. I just remember yeah. a girl coming over, Ashley Barnes, and she was one of these. I was a bit of a, a tomboy, basically. I used to like getting muddy with all the boys and playing footy in the garden and this girl Ashley she was one of those 
she had the perfect pigtails and she sort of came into the house and there's all these boys running around, football's been kicked along the hallway. And she was like, oh my God, is this your house? Do you, do you live here with all these boys? And I was like, yeah, I do, this is my life. And she, I swear she thought I lived in some sort of mad cult or went back and told everyone in my class that Nikki lives with 20 boys and it's weird and but that was my life and um it was brilliant and I think that's why I'm just so comfortable working in the industry Uh, I I am I do and you know never been phased by much really and it was all from from that little head start I suppose all the young lads used to all crawl around Carol because she'd make make all kinds of cakes and Mm. sandwiches and all everything so they were always like eating that's all they did when I used to walk in they was <laughs> just eating and that was down to my wife feeding them all the time yeah well Brian Atkinson and Martin Gray you mentioned earlier I mean I read an interview with them and they and they have talked they've waxed lyrical about Carol's um bacon sausage and egg sandwiches and now they lived off them yeah. and how, how good were those sarnies do it if you remember that was in the cup run that we had when we traveled away we'd train and then we would go to, back to the hostel, mm. Carol would do them a lovely big sandwich and everything, and then would get on the coach and hit the road, you know, and that became a little bit of a the normal thing to do if we had mm. to travel for the FA Cup, which which we did actually quite a bit. I mean, on a serious so, point, the, the, the former players from that time have said that that hostel, and as you said, because older players were there, the entire squad was coming to kind of meet there, was a real important area for them to bond um they've all spoke I've, I've read various interviews they said it was that hostel going there having carol sandwiches and just being together before they went got on the coach of the away games or during that run and during that season generally it, it felt like it was a really important place obviously a huge part of both of your lives um you know for nikki growing up there especially but for that squad as well that hostel was really important yeah i think it was and i think it was a, a case of obviously trying to get the squad the group of players together yeah um and it, and it was relaxing for them as well. It mm. wasn't a case of we were going into, obviously we'd go to a hotel when we when we got to where, wherever we were playing and probably have a nice meal. But it was a case of relaxing after training and there wasn't any any pressure on, on these players. And they were a great set of lads, you know, they were quite a young set of players really um, that we had. They all got on well. They really mm. did. And... Um, you know, it does help if you've got a good spirit amongst your players. Mm. Um, it's a big help. It really is. I used to just remember from those days when the first team used to come in. And it's mad because when I think back, I was so young, but the, the memories of these moments are so vivid. But I used to look out the window because my bedroom faced the seafront and the mm. players, the team would get off the coach around the corner and walk along the seafront and then come into the, the garden and I'd be so excited when the first team come and I just used to look out for John Burns blonde wallet. <laughs> that was it and when I saw that my heart was racing my first crush you know John Byrne at the time was just godlike in Sunderland and when I saw that blo- bright blonde mullet bouncing along past the wall I'd be like oh, Bernie's coming <laughs> I remember like there's pictures of um, all us kids with the with the first team. And I mean, when I look back, it was like, you can't imagine a football team in the championship have doing this sort of no. stuff. My mum likes to say that she created the concept of the wag. <laughs> she, she used to get all the wives, didn't she, dad? And like all the wives and girlfriends used to go for big nights out and all get together and it was just a real family club. And I think that was sort of what you and 
mum and obviously all the coaching stuff you kind of created like there was uncle rog and sue the, was he the goalkeeping coach at the time and yeah, like, uh, he came in as youth coach, Rog. Youth coach, but we were just like this big family, weren't we? After big results, everyone would come back to the hostel, we'd throw on music, and I don't know, it was um, there was just something always happening outside mm. of the football. It was like match days and a continuation of like joy and celebration around the matches. It was it was it's great, and I feel I feel very grateful very that my dad really? <laughs> let me do it. Yeah. Huh? I said, this doesn't sound very professional. It? <laughs> it's, all we were doing was partying. Yeah. <laughs> but, that, but as you say, as, as the players have said, you guys have touched on it there, it did build a, an incredible sort of harmony with the squad. It, has, it, it felt like it was a really important place for them to, to talk and to chat and to, and to build a bond. That got them to Wembley eventually that season. So let's just go through the, the road to Wembley then. Sunderland's games leading up to the final against Liverpool. So in the third round, they played Port Vale, won 3-0 quite, uh, at home at Roker Park. Relatively comfortable win. Brian Atkinson, Peter Davenport and John Byrne with the goals. Fourth round was Oxford away, uh, 3-2 win. Um, took a pretty comfortable 3-0 lead, I believe. Byrne, Hardiman and Atkinson with the goals. And then Oxford got two quite late on to, um, to make a bit of a nervous finish. Fifth round, you then got a one-all draw with West Ham at Roker Park. John Byrne scoring again to cancel out a goal by Mike Small. The replay Upton Park was 3-2. Byrne scored twice. Martin Allen got two back for West Ham and then David Rush got the winner to put Sunderland in their first FA Cup quarterfinal since 1976. Then the quarterfinal, which we'll come on to in a bit more detail later, against Chelsea. So it's one all at Stamford Bridge. John Byrne again, cancelling out a goal by Clive Allen. And then the replay, which is what we'll talk about specifically, Aroka Park, 2-1. Uh, Peter Davenport gave Sunderland the lead. Dennis... Wise equalised in the 85th minute and then Gordon Armstrong got the winner right at the end uh, with a header from a Brian Atkinson corner. Uh, and then the semi-final was a 1-0 win over Norwich uh, at Hillsborough. No surprise, John Byrne with the goal again. I mean, I think what's remarkable about that run, Malcolm, is you beat three first division teams in that time. And to reiterate, Sunderland was struggling in the second division at the time. So you've beaten three first division sides and you've beaten two of them, West Ham and Chelsea, twice. Um, you've had to get past both of them uh, in two separate games. I mean, that really is a remarkable run. And I guess it showed the quality of that team as well as the character. Well, there was lots, there was lots of quality. The character was unbelievable from mm. the whole squad of players that we were working with. And the, one of the big things as well, you do need a little bit of luck at times, you know. And there was certain times in there, some of the games where actually, you know, somebody like Tony Norman, he'd pull off three or four great saves. Mm. You know, and um, you, you won the game. And you, you, need, you need either a player to have a great game or you, you just need a, a little bit of luck. And, and we, we always felt we could win games. And that, was the, that wasn't me being cocky it was the players having that belief they had the belief that they could win it and the reason that, that they did win the games in the end it was down to their characters every player I would say I can't think of any of them that were not prepared to work hard and see and try and get that result absolutely and uh, I mean well let's talk about John Byrne then Nicky's um Nicky's a uh, childhood crush. Um, so as I said, he scored in every round leading up to the final. Um, he was only at Sunderland for one season, but I mean, absolutely remarkable season. Um, he also did earn 23 caps for the Republic of Ireland, we should say. I mean, how good was he? Why did he only spend one season at Sunderland? Why did he keep scoring every round? What was going on with John Byrne that season? Do you know, I'll go back to 1982, I think it was, 83. I played for York City and John Byrne played for York City. 
Obviously, did you play together? We played in the same team. Wow, I wasn't aware. I came into York and I was playing, and then John Byrne was probably about 18, and he used to train with us every day, but he wasn't in the team. And I used to think, my God, he's got some ability, this lad, you know. Then Dennis Smith came on loan to York. Then he left, and then he became, came back and became player manager. And the first thing he did, he got John Byrne and put him straight in the team because he'd seen him training. And mm. the previous managers, they didn't play him. He was absolutely wonderful for, for York. Dennis signed him, um, took him, I think he signed him from La Havre, I think. Um, oh, in he, France? Yeah, I think. Oh, he'd, okay. I think he'd gone from Brighton to La Havre, or maybe yeah. I've got it the wrong way around. But anyway, Bernie joined us. And then the year. He, he was scoring goals in the cup, and it was incredible because you think, how does somebody, you know, he wasn't scoring regular in the league, but every cup game he was scoring. You think, mm. just keep doing it, you know, you, don't complicate anything, let him get on with it. But then when we got to the final, and obviously we lost, he decided he wanted to leave because uh, he, want, he wanted more money, which is like any player would do, you know, he'd been mm. like, an absolute hero. He'd done the job that was asked of him and he wanted to leave because he wanted more money. And I tried to get him a little bit more money, but what he wanted was too much. But the only thing, when he asked me for it, we were sat in a bar in Magaluf. (laughs) And it was after the cup final and I was like, Bernie, do not ask me about your contract while we're all having a few pints in Magaluf. (laughs) That's the last thing I want to talk about, Mark. First night, this is the first night we're in. Oh, back, I will discuss it with you, but yeah. I'm not discussing it here. <laughs> and uh, I'll still keep in touch with Bernie. He was a fa- lovely, lovely lad, right? But he went and he got more money. He went to Millwall, got more money. And, you know, as I always said to players, why would you want to leave Sunderland? No disrespect to Millwall, because it's a it's a good club, you know. Mm. But why would you want to leave Sunderland to go there? I mean, Nicky, you mentioned his hair. I mean, it, it sort of stands out in my mind as well. Even I remember being, I say, 11 at the time and just looked like a million dollars, didn't he? He was scoring every week. He had he looked like a member of Duran Duran. He was, he was the business that season, wasn't he, old John Byrne? He was the business. However, <laughs> I think he got overshadowed when... Uh, Janola went to Newcastle oh, and people wow. were like, oh, that's what that hair <laughs> And there was just so many pictures when Janola went to Newcastle of him without his shirt off. That poor, poor Bernie then. Everyone was flocking to, to Newcastle and heading over to, to check out Janola. But, um, and he was yeah. quite good, really, wasn't he, Janola? Yeah. He was all right, wasn't he? I remember <laughs> I said, you took us, didn't you? Because you obviously got on very well with Kevin Keegan, who was at Newcastle. Yeah. And we went over to their training ground one day. Yeah. Um, and we were able to to watch the, the um, training and check out Shearer and... Got their autographs. Yeah. Neil, our brother, was having a kick around with Peter Beardsley's kids and Shaka Hislop waltzed in. And it was just, yeah, that was a great day. I still remember that. We've actually got pictures... My cousin sent me pictures of that the other day. It was oh. me and um, me and Alison and Les Ferdinand. It was like, yeah, brilliant. And obviously, Kevin, he comes to, well, he used to come to Qatar quite a lot. So just like the loveliest man in the world. But no, it was, yeah, I don't know why we've moved on to, to Newcastle. But yeah, John Byrne, great hair. Great, great hair, hair, yeah. 
Well, let, let's talk about the, the Chelsea replay because it's um, the, the quarterfinal replay against Chelsea. As I said, you drew one all at Stamford Bridge. You brought them back to Roker Park. And, and that replay is talked about as one of the great nights in, in Sunderland history. Um, Jonathan Wilson, who's a, a Guardian journalist, huge Sunderland fan. One, yeah, one of my colleagues at the Guardian. We had a we had a series last summer to kind of cover for the lack of football when, um, or I should say, last spring when pandemic struck and there was no football. So we started a series at the Guardian called My Favorite Game, where, we, where all the writers were asked to you know, write about their favorite game. And Jonathan's been watching football for years. He's been all around the world. He's covered World Cups. He's covered Copa Americas, Champions League finals. His favorite yeah. game that he wrote about was that Sunderland Chelsea game in 1992. And I just want to read both of you his, his introduction because I think it really evokes a strong sense of how incredible and unique the atmosphere was that night. And then I'll come to you and get your thoughts on the game. So this is Jonathan's, Jonathan Wilson's introduction, his piece, my favorite game piece about uh, Sunderland. Uh, victory over Chelsea in the 92 uh, FA Cup quarterfinal. What stands out still is the silences. After every line of every chant, the silence was complete. Everybody was joining in. Nobody shuffled or muttering. 26,000 people united. We'd heard the stories, of course. We knew about the Roker roar. We thought we'd heard it, but we hadn't. Not until then. Not until the night Sunderland beat Chelsea to reach the 1992 FA Cup semi-final. Um, there's so many stories. Come to you first, Malcolm, about the atmosphere that night. I mean, what are your memories of that of that night against Chelsea in 1992? Well, first of all, um, when you look at the teams we were playing, it was very difficult, you know. Chelsea were a good team. They had a lot of the ball. They created chances. We were we worked very hard in the game. We had good little spells of football and we obviously scored the first goal and then the Chelsea dominated. They get the equaliser. And then the winning goal, I'll never forget it because after training, Brian Atkinson and Gordon Armstrong would practice that corner. And I used to have a laugh with them. You know, I used to say, why don't you just get in? Because you're never going to score from the edge of the box. <laughs> you know, and have a laugh with them. Yeah, and just yeah, say, yeah. yeah, and they used to do it. Every, after every training session, they'd knock a few balls in. Yeah. And, Gordon would, and to this day, when I think back and just had a laugh with them and saying that, for them to actually do it, and it was an incredible goal because, I mean, you couldn't have headed it anywhere but in that top corner as you wouldn't have scored. Yeah. And it was an unbelievable goal. It's a fantastic, fantastic glancing header, wasn't it? As you say, from sort of near the edge of the box, Brian, I can swung it in from the right. And it, yeah, just a brilliant header past Dave Best, an unstoppable header from Gordon Armstrong, wasn't it? And, you know, it just shows you, you can practice and it can make it perfect. And mm. uh, they did it. I can't remember if there was a noise or if it was silent when it went in. I just can't. I was quite shocked, yeah. to be honest, and it didn't give them any time of getting back and getting an equaliser, you know. So it was a, yeah. it was a huge, huge result for the club, not yeah. just for myself personally. It was a massive result for the club. Well, Jonathan continued. He wrote in the article. He was at the other side of the ground because Chelsea's fans had the old Roker end right behind the goal where, where Gordon Armstrong scored, and he was at the other side of the ground. And because of the trajectory of the ball, because it kind of slowly went in, it was a really good header, very precise header, but it didn't have a lot of speed on it. It just, he just thought it had sort of drifted into Dave Besson's hands. And then, as you said, it was a kind of a silence when everyone realised, oh my God, it's gone past him. And then the ground absolutely erupts. I mean, Nicky, I presume you weren't there that night because you were so young, but do you have any memories I of it? There. Oh, you were I there. Fantastic. There. What are your yeah, memories of yeah. it? This is what I mean. They didn't mind how late we stayed up. <laughs> terrible, huh? <laughs> but no, that was there. <laughs> <laughs> and um, no, we used to go to pretty much every home oh, game okay. as a family especially that one. There was no chance any of us were missing that. Yeah. Um, 
when Sunderland got to the League Cup final against Manchester City, my boss actually said, why don't you do a report with your dad and talk about the, the 1992 FA Cup finals? So we did, and we went to Sunderland and we interviewed the, four, um, the team. It was good, wasn't it, Dad? Um, yeah, yeah. It was a good laugh. Um, so I've obviously poured over that archive footage when making this report. Mm. So I, but I remember being a little girl. I can't remember what the goal looked like. You know, I, I know it because I've seen it since. Yeah. But I just remember being this little girl and my family around me going bananas. My mum with tears in her eyes, my auntie going, you know, my brothers going nuts. The entire stadium, I was probably, I wouldn't have been able to see over everyone jumping around. Um, But that euphoria coming from the people you love around me, Mm. it was like, wow, something really big has just happened. Brian Atkinson. The outswinger this time. And a good header. And a great header. To make it 2-1. And Sunderland has struck back again. Gordon Armstrong, who has played so well throughout this game, has scored a goal worthy of taking a team to the semi-final. The outswinging corner... And just watch the header. That was magnificent. Crowd know that it's beyond the 90 minutes. They're willing the referee to check the watch, blow the whistle, put us out of our suspense and agony. Cascarino's trying to get through there. There were bodies falling in his way. And that's real tough tie defending. Anything will do as long as it blocks the route to goal. That'll do. That'll get them down the other end. It'll buy some precious time. Mr Holbrook has checked his watch. He's checked again. Sunderland on the brink of the semi-final. Joining Portsmouth to make two second division sides in the last four. Can they hold out for the last few seconds? Can Cascarino conjure something? Has Wise got another trick? No, it is all too late. Sunderland celebrate. Malcolm Crosby comes off the bench. Davenport, the scorer of the first. Wise plucking out an equaliser right at the death. And then Armstrong with the thunderbolt to which there was no answer. A victory that they will prize here for years to come and we'll look ahead now to a semi-final and maybe more glory still. I remember when the fans rushed the pitch and looking down at the pitch going, oh my goodness, my daddy's in there. What's <laughs> happening to him? Where is he? <laughs> <laughs> He's amongst all those Sutherland fans. Um, a, a magical night and I loved that article from Jonathan Wilson. I forwarded it on in the family WhatsApp group, Dad. Can you remember? I think it was in the oh, summer. Yeah. Yeah. And um, oh, it was a lovely article he wrote. And yeah. I was shocked like you, Sash, and I thought, how many matches must Jonathan Wilson yeah. have attended in his career? And he yeah. picked that one. But I think every Sunderland fan you meet, they mention that game. You know, you get into a chat with them. That's the match they mention always. It's sort of, it's um, sketched into many Sunderland fans' hearts that moment. If you're at Rebecca Park that night, oh, you've lived. It's the finish of the game that everybody remembers. You know, you ask them, Oh, what happened in the previous 88 minutes or whatever? They're probably, oh, oh yeah, yeah, you know, it was, a, it was a good game, but it's just that last bit of the end of the game, which 
it's 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 in everyone's memory as a fan. Yeah, I mean, Nicky was terrified for you, Malcolm, when the pitch invasion happened at the end of the game. Were you were you terrified? Was it your first experience of a pitch invasion? No, no, not at all. I would have been terrified had we have lost. <laughs> but no, I was in shock because when it went in, I, I, I knew the first thing in my head was, my God, I'm going to get stick off Gordon in there, Brian Atkinson, <laughs> when, they, when they come in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was quite, I was in shock because I knew we'd won really because I thought, well, I'm not going to come back. It's too late now. Mm. And so it was a fantastic feeling, you know, to, to see it go in and obviously win the game. You went to Hillsborough next to and beat Norwich 1-0. John Byrne obviously scored um, and to get Sunderland to the FA Cup yeah. final. And um, so that final then, uh, which we'll come on to in a second, but you were made then permanent manager, Malcolm, between the semi-final and the final on a one-year deal. And am I right in to say you weren't especially happy with how it was dealt with by the then chairman, Sir Bob Murray, given how long it took them to offer you a deal and how short it was? I guess it wasn't the greatest show of confidence in you just to offer you a one-year deal, given what you'd achieved. Well... I think the achievement was quite good because staying up was the most important yeah. thing. You had you achieved that at that stage as well? Yeah. Did you, when you got the contract, had you secured um, your safety in the second division as well at that, by that stage as well? Yeah, um, yeah, we did. Look, you know, I was young then. I probably could have done with some help in terms of, you know, people say, well, agents aren't good for the game, but some are good, very good agents. Mm-hmm. And maybe I could have done with someone to give me some better advice because I was getting advice off people in football saying, don't sign a one-year contract. You know, you'll get a job somewhere else, blah, blah, blah. I didn't want a job anywhere else. You know, Dennis, would got, Dennis by this time, Dennis Smith had gone to Bristol City. He wanted me to go to Bristol City with him. And, you know, I'm a Sunderland supporter. And it was a big job, but I wanted to take it. And Bob Murray knew that. So he wasn't going to be saying, well, there's a four-year deal yeah. or whatever. He knew I was wanting to stay. And the one thing with Bob Murray was he never interfered with my job when I was there, coaching, managing. He never interfered. But I think they could have possibly been a little bit better with the way with the way they did it. It made it difficult because I wasn't in a strong position, really. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm yeah. trying to send a player for, say, give him a three-year deal and the manager's on a one-year contract, which players probably think, you know, hang on, you know, I might want to work with this manager, but it might not be for long. Exactly, yeah. no, <laughs> it, was, it, was a, it was strange, but, you know, when you look back, you're young and I could have just done with maybe some help, professional help along the way there. Right, let's get on to the FA Cup final then. So the 9th of May, 1992. Um, the squad, I believe, uh, I believe I'm right in saying stayed at a hotel in Marlow near the Thames. And yeah. um, is it fair to say, Malcolm, your preparations for, for the game were disrupted somewhat by the fact that your youngest daughter threw a tantrum over the fact she couldn't wear a Sunderland top to Wembley the following day? Is that, am, I, am I right in <laughs> thinking that? Mum made me wear a sailor outfit. And I was furious. What are you saying, Sasha? I can blame her. For I was going to say, I think it's Nikki's fault something didn't win the final. I think she threw you off your game, Malcolm, with a little yeah, well tantrum. Done. Well done. I've never thought of it that way. <laughs> well done. Yeah, we Nikki, all, did I tell this story? We all had tantrums before the game. I, I had a bit of a wobbler because I, I wanted to wear my Sunland kit. And mum made me wear this really silly sailor girl outfit because it was the colour of the away strip, the blue and white. I think Neil had a tantrum, didn't he? Because he wanted to be with the team and you or something. And, you know, I just felt, I 
now I'm older, I feel for dad. You know, he's prepping for the biggest game of his entire career and his family are all throwing wobblers um, on match day. But yeah, I think, um, I don't think I did the, the many favours there. But yeah, I think your prep was pretty good, dad. Didn't you have a, what did you, I remember one of the players saying how relaxed it was and well, how you well, had fun. The complete angler. And it was down to uh, my vice chairman, Graham Wood, who I've become... Like we're really, really big friends. We're interested in sport. We're both interested in the railways. Yeah, and we go all over to watch games, you know, and have yeah. train, we'll have a train ride. And Graham was massive. He took me down to London. We went to see different hotels. We picked uh, the Complete Angler and Marlow. Players were near Bisham Abbey, so we trained there for the week. And everything was, you couldn't ask, you know, everything was, the chairman used to, if you wanted to do something, the chairman was very, very good at letting you do it. You know, mm-hmm. if you wanted to go away for a couple of days, I, I took them to Turnbury in the cup run, played golf. Kevin Ball and I weren't golfers, so I used to hammer him every day at squash. <laughs> um, and the rest were on the golf course yeah. at Turnbury. And, and, you know, we were, I was fortunate that if we wanted to do anything, the chairman would, would let us. And that was the same with the, the complete angler and and staying there, it wasn't a problem. And everything was perfect. You couldn't, everything was set out to to get us right for the cup final, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, what was the mood like then in the camp going into going into the game? I mean, just to put put into context, so you had stayed up in the second division, you had avoided relegation, but you'd finished 18th, which is obviously quite low. Liverpool had finished sixth in the first division. They had they didn't have a great season, but still, you know, a very good team, as as, as you said earlier. Um, was there genuine belief in the camp that you could you could win on on that Saturday at Wembley? Yeah, I mean, when I look back, we'd worked on um, we worked a lot on set players because we felt that could be our strength against them, you know, and possibly a way of scoring against them. I didn't have a worry about trying to say to players every day, you know, you can win this. They they believed that mm. that they could win it. And again, I think sometimes you know people say it. It's like Sunderland won the FA Cup in 73 and Jimmy Montgomery made an unbelievable save and they won the Cup. So you can have that little bit of luck that goes your way. And we were obviously wanting, we needed luck as well because we were playing, even though they'd finished sixth, they were still they had quality players. Yeah. And so we had a game plan to work, work against them. And when we came in at nil-nil, you think, I knew what to say I wish I hadn't said it, but I said, you go the next 15 minutes in this game, we'll win it. And Liverpool scored after two minutes. So that was a bad mistake, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) It's famous last words, isn't it? Yeah. And that's what, you know, we were in the half-time, nil-nil, and we thought, right, and that was me, that was my talk, part of my talk. Go 15 minutes, you will win this game. And unfortunately, Thomas scored a great goal. And I felt after that, you know, Liverpool were very dominant and they showed that class then. And I'm, I'm not really sure if I'd have done this interview, if I'd have known you were a Liverpool fan, Sasha. Oh, well, I told, I told Nicky to keep it, to keep it quiet. Uh, cause, oh, yeah, I thought... You rubbed it in a little bit at the beginning, didn't you, Nick? 
Yeah, that yeah. wasn't rubbing it at all. I, I, as I said, no, I've, I've sort of, um, yeah, I was, I was, yeah, I was delighted we won, obviously. But uh, you know, when you're that age and you're watching, you're watching your team playing the first FA Cup final, all of it is exciting. So even like I, I became slightly obsessed with the Sunderland team and trying to trying to learn about them as well because I was just unbelievably excited about the whole experience. But I mean, to talk about that team, so just to go through it, then correct in saying you lined up four four two, Tony Norman in goal, Gary yeah. Owens. Kevin Ball, Gary Bennett and Anton Rogan at the back. Yeah. Ryan Atkinson, Paul Bracewell, Gordon Armstrong and David Rush in midfield and John Byrne and Peter Davenport up front. And and you had you had the first 45 minutes, you were good, weren't you? I mean, you were right to say what you said at half-time. You played well. John Byrne arguably should have scored, had a decent chance. He had a great chance. We did very well in the first half. Yeah. Uh, Liverpool had two or three chances as well. And, you know, when you go in at a game, in a game in a, especially in a final, and it's nil-nil, then you know you, you've mm. got a chance of winning it. You've got 45 minutes to, to go on and win the game. And we knew that Liverpool had good players. And it was just it was just something that yes, people say a lot, you know, I wish I hadn't said that. Mm. And that's what I'd said to them, you know. Not I spoke more about going on to win the game, but it was about if you go 10, 15 minutes. And it's still nil-nil. They'll get a bit frustrated. But unfortunately, you know, they scored that very good goal. And then after that, I felt the, the class of Liverpool players, you know, it did take over. So, yes, uh, summarising the 1992 FA Cup final, uh, it was nil-nil at half-time. And then, as Malcolm said, Michael Thomas gave Liverpool the lead two minutes after the break with a, with a very good goal. A right-footed volley from a tight angle inside Sunderland's area, following good play by Steve McManaman. Liverpool then, as Malcolm also said, pretty much dominated and Ian Rush sealed their win and what was their fifth FA Cup with a close-range finish on 68 minutes. Um, going back to the very start of the game, Malcolm, as you led Sunderland out onto the pitch, Ronnie Moran was to your right doing the same with Liverpool. Ronnie was Liverpool's assistant manager at the time and was given that duty because Liverpool's actual manager, Graham Souness, had recently undergone triple height heart bypass surgery and was deemed too unwell and unstable by his doctors to be at Wembley for such a big occasion. But Souness being Souness, he still turned up and watched from the bench. Um, were you aware Graham was at Wembley, Malcolm? And did you speak to him before, during or after the game? Uh, yeah, I was aware that he was um, at Wembley. And I also spoke to him and I just can't remember. I think it might have been before the game. I had a quick word with him. Um, but it wasn't a long conversation. Mm-hmm. And obviously, after the game, I didn't see Graham, um, but I, obviously, I, I, I spoke to uh, the Liverpool staff after. Were you um, were you aware he was going to turn up, or did it did it come as a complete surprise to you? Uh, no, I don't think it came as a surprise because if you know Graham, you know <laughs> he's a total winner. Indeed, <laughs> and, uh, I don't think there was any way he was going to miss a cup final when it was his team. It's, you know, you, you lose games, but I, I think Graham Souness is a, is a fantastic fella. And I've got to say, when I watch him on TV, I think he's the best TV uh, critic, football critic going, you know, I think he's excellent. Yeah, no, he's, he's, a, he's a very, uh, should we say, forthright pundit. And uh, you should say that was the end of his first full season as Liverpool manager as well. He'd arrived halfway through the season before, after after Kenny Dalglish uh, had resigned. Um, yeah, just going back to you leading Sunderland now. I mean, that moment when you led when you led the team out, making that famous walk from the tunnel to the centre of the pitch at Wembley. For a boyhood Sunderland fan, that must have been very special for you. And we should say, in case there are any uh, especially young listeners listening to this episode, the FA Cup final was still a huge deal then as well in 1992. So, yeah, it just must have been a massive moment for you. Yeah, it was a fantastic moment for me. And... Um... 
you, you realise how lucky you are to be able to do it because yeah. a lot of good managers, very good managers, have never actually got to a cup final. And um, there was I walking out after being, being manager from January, walking out in May. It, it was a fantastic feeling. It was a nervous time, you know. You're very nervous because obviously uh, you've got a cup final and you want to win it. Nicky, what your what your memories that game in your, your little sailor outfit at Wembley? What do you remember about it? I think I was just still raging about the sailor outfit. <laughs> <laughs> it was just sort of immense. I just remember everyone feeling so disappointed because we as children, you know, football isn't about oh they're in this league and yeah. the, you know they're Liverpool. You support your team, and as a kid, you think your team can win every single game. So we didn't understand the magnitude of what Dad and his team were trying to do against Liverpool. My older brother Ian would have, but they would have got it. But for me, I I thought my dad was going to win this one, and mm. so it was sad. And I remember after the game, been in the sort of family players lounge bar, and um, I think I'd lost you all. I was, or I'd done a little wandering off act. And I remember Jake, John Barnes coming up to me and saying are you okay? Are you lost? And I was like, yeah, I can't find my family. And he went, well, who's your dad? And I went, Malcolm Crosby. And he was like, oh. Um, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and um, funny John Barnes, I, I sort of know John Barnes now. He's, I've worked with him quite a few yeah. times. And I sort of have this memory of meeting him first at around six years old. So it was, it was, it was upsetting. We wanted dad to win. We thought yeah. that was going to be how that fairy tale would end. What price would you have got against these two men leading out the cup final teams when the competition started? Ronnie Moran, 43 years at Anfield, standing in today for Graham Souness. And Malcolm Crosby, only appointed manager permanently a week ago, and he took over at the turn of the year as caretaker. It's a fabulous reception again. And as we've said so often at moments like this, it all depends on what happens on the day, and we're off. Uh, number six there is David Rush for Sunderland on the right-hand side. Here's Nickel now. Swung wide by Mulvey, beautifully to Ray Houghton, number eight. Michael Thomas, a forward, but in space, Michael Thomas shoots, holds his head for skying it, but Tony Norman was very quick to his feet. Typical Liverpool move with it, Ray Houghton, comes inside on his right foot so well, just flicks it with the outside of his foot, Thomas making that deep run, and tries to lift it over Norman because he's so close to him, spread himself well and lifted it over the crossbar. Rogan. Oh, a skidder. Grobelaar from Anton Rogan and Grobelaar may have collided with the post yeah he's just hit the back, back of his head there uh, got a lovely left foot Rogan this one just bounces nastily and you can see the thud there that's a nasty whack and the referee brings the first half to a close I'm just going to watch referee Don walk off here in case any of the Liverpool party decide to remonstrate with him but um, it was certainly one of the uh, points of the first half which will cause discussion. Knocked out wide to McManaman, who is indeed starting on the right-hand side this time. Takes on Atkinson, gets past him, and flips it in to Michael Thomas. Thomas is shot! Oh, 
minutes of the second half, Liverpool have taken the lead in the cup final, and McManaman, who Trevor Brooking said would do more damage on the right than on the left, got the ball in, and Michael Thomas swung his right foot, and that goes down as one of the best cup final goals. Beautifully delivered, and what about this? Great finish, sir. We criticised Michael Thomas a bit, the fact he lifted the ball over Tony Norman and the goal early on. But that was uh, still only a half chance. Good play by Stephen Norman. Here's Houghton. Saunders. Thomas through the middle again. Michael Thomas. Rush. 2 0 Liverpool. So, so simple. And vintage Ian Rush. 68 minutes gone, and Liverpool go two goals clear in the cup final. And there's nobody that loves the Wembley scene better than Ian Rush. Saunders again involved, unselfish play from Thomas, and there Ian Rush, either side to choose from, tucked it away. Saunders running at the defence, Michael Thomas, another of those surging runs, could have been selfish, saw Rush there, and at 2-0 now, Although Sunderland are going to make their substitution, I, I can't see it them getting back into this uh, a typical Liverpool move. That's the way to finish, you don't have to burst the net, pick the spot. And Liverpool have won the FA Cup in their centenary year and qualify again for Europe. Second division Sunderland, well beaten on the day. But Michael Thomas's goal after 47 minutes Followed by one from Ian Rush after 68 minutes. The difference between the two sides in a match where Liverpool totally dominated the second half. Liverpool win the FA Cup for the fifth time and in their centenary year as well. We're obviously immensely proud of Dad and his career. And I don't know, that, that was just kind of the start and really doesn't matter what Dad's done, what, what club he's gone to. It can be Sunderland in the FA Cup or Northampton, Northampton Town or Swindon or Borough. We've, we've loved the journey as a family. I think we've always, it's the FA Cup or just fighting for, you know, mid-table with Northampton Town. We're there, we're always rooting behind and we always feel really gutted after every defeat. So it's just an, another another defeat, Dad, wasn't it? <laughs> it was, but... When you said you were lost, the truth was we were hiding from you. <laughs> <laughs> that was your chance to lose it for once and for all. problems that yeah, we were hiding. Wasn't there a mix-up with the, with the medals as well? Didn't you guys end up with yes. the medals? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, after they got the medals, uh, I said to Rushy, let's have a look at your medal. And he showed me it. And I said, you've got a winner's medal here. And they've been given the winner's medals. And I said, Rushy, you need to... Just put that in your pocket, get yourself straight up that tunnel and get off quick. And we'd all been given winners' medals, which yeah. was like, well, I didn't get a medal at the time. Yeah. Uh, yes. But I don't know how they got that wrong. Like, there must have been, that must have been a really good wine that day. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Uh, um, and then they followed a, an open top bus parade from from the city centre to the to the seafront. Um, I mean, thousands came out. Would that have been the following day? I guess the Sunday, and it must have been a really special moment for the entire yeah, it family. Was, it was. We had um, we stayed in a hotel on the night after, the night of the game, and then we came, we travelled back on the Sunday. And it was it was you know it, it's it's amazing how brilliant supporters really are. It doesn't matter what club you you're with. Mm. 
you know, you've lost, which hurts. And you, the thing is, you if you get to Wembley, you've got to win because you're a hero forever. Not me. I'm talking about players and everyone. If I look at 73, them players now are still heroes. Jimmy Montgomery still, mm-hmm. still up there, you know, the absolute heroes forever. And it was a shame that we couldn't have done that. But we got back and um, the fans were incredible. You know, it started in Durham as we came off the A1 and it led all the way into Sunderland. And uh, yeah, it was it was very touching, to be honest. I mean, that's, that's huge for you. As a Sunderland fan, you've seen your own people come back to, to congratulate you and show their appreciation for you in your thousands. I mean, that just for you personally, that must have been an immense moment. Well, Sunderland supporters, they've gone, some, gone through some rough times of late, but they'll still... They only need to win two or three games and they'll fill the place and they'll yeah. be back. And you just hope that's that's going to happen, you know. Yeah, we'll, we'll come on to London more broadly in a second, but would you have been on that bus, Nicky? I think we did a little stint on it, didn't we? Did we hop on along the seafront and then did, yeah. hop yeah. off? Um, just pretty bonkers, really. For me, like some some there's something very special about the people of the northeast and and Sunderland fans. Like when you go up there, when Dad was recently with Gateshead, I remember having to pop into Newcastle to get a bit of makeup or whatever. And I said I'll be back in 45 minutes, and I was back two and a half hours later because everyone talks to everyone in the in the northeast of England. You can't go anywhere without having a chat. You can't get on the bus without having a chat to the person next to you. You can't go to a makeup counter with, E, where are you from? Pet, you're not from around here, are you? And, and then you can go to and get yourself a pasty without having a big old conversation with the person behind the counter. I think the people of the, the northeast are very sort of special. And I think they got the... They loved Dad's story um, at the time, and even people who remember it now, who you speak to, they love the fact that Dad was from the area, that he was a rookie manager, and he got this job by chance, and he took them all on this journey, and he made the fans feel like they were really on it with them. And I think that's why they came out in force um, that day, because... It gave the people of Sunderland a lift. It was like when when they were queuing for the for the tickets for the final. Mum and Dad went and got a call from one of their friends, and they said, "You know, you've got to come out and see these queues outside Broker Park for the ticket." And you you and Mum went down there and chatted with all the fans. And I think the fans remember things like that and really got behind Dad and his team, and um, and especially more so because he was a he was a northeast lad, born and mm. bred. Before we move on, I just want to focus a bit more on the Sunderland team that played in the 92 final. Now, normally on this podcast, I get my guests to pick an all-time 11 made up of the best 11 players they've seen play for their club. But for me, Malcolm, the 11 players you picked to face Liverpool are the all-time 11 for this episode, despite the fact they didn't achieve what the Sunderland side of 73 did. So let's go through them again. Uh, 4-4-2, as we mentioned earlier. Tony Norman in goal. Back four of Gary Owers, Kevin Ball, Gary Bennett and Anton Rogan. In midfield, Brian Atkinson, Paul Bracewell, Gordon Armstrong and David Rush. And up front, John Byrne and Peter Davenport. Uh, we talked about a few players already, the likes of Tony Norman in goal, Paul Bracewell and of course, John Byrne. Are there any other players you'd like to pick out for special mention, either in regards to how they played against Liverpool in the final or in regard to their contribution to the cup run as a whole? I uh, get a sense that you're especially fond of David Rush, given he was a local lad. Well, I, I was fond of David Rush. Um, I think sometimes, you know, you have to find out uh, their background. Sometimes it's been tough for them and David had a bit of a tough 
background as a young player, as a okay. young person. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you did everything you could to try and make life uh, easier for him. And he was one of those players who just, you give you everything on the pitch every game. And it, sometimes it might not be particularly good enough or another day it would be great. And then, you know, you look at somebody like Brian Atkinson, who was a young player, but was unbelievable talent. And as a midfield player, I feel for him because he suffered with injuries after I left. And for me, I think he would have played for England had he have not uh, had the injuries that he had. He was a very, very good midfield player. Okay. And um, Paul Bracewell, who was my captain, was a fantastic influence on the rest of the players. Mm-hmm. And um, he was a massive help to me as a, as a captain. Paul Hardiman was an unlucky player because he played in nearly every, I think he played in every round. And unfortunately, you know, I didn't play him in the final. Uh, that was a tough decision to make. That was my only decision, really, that I had to make. And it was very tough. But, you know, when you look at Gary Bennett, um, Gary Hours, Anton Rogan, just fantastic, committed players. I wouldn't class them as being like top, top players, but their attitude when they played for me, was fantastic. Um, And Gordon Armstrong was exactly the same. You know, Gordon Armstrong gave you everything. He was a fantastic player in the opposition's box because he was such a threat in the air. And he used to do a great job defensively in the box um, against set players. Peter Davenport, a really talented player, obviously had played for Manchester United. And again, a real clever striker, um, who had good pace. And, you know, when you look at the team that I had, we had some good players who could cause problems to uh, the t- Well, they caused problems to the teams that we played and uh, defeated. Can you explain why that team and the squad as a whole was, was brilliant in the FA Cup, but struggled in the league that season? Uh, I mean, I said earlier, Sunderland finished 18th in the second division in the 91-92 season, winning 14 games, drawing 11 and losing 21 of their 46 fixtures. Um, have you ever been able to put your finger on why Yeah, why, why, the, why the league was a struggle, but you were so good in the FA Cup that season? I, I can put my finger on it. It was definitely a case of, you know, when we had replays, we, sort of, we went to West Ham, we went to Chelsea, and we, we won one game, we drew with Chelsea, beat West Ham, finished the game. You don't get away from the ground till probably gone 11 o'clock. Mm. You get back to your hotel... The lads, you know, had a bite to eat, a couple of beers. By the time they go to bed, it's gone one o'clock. You're up next day, train back to the northeast. I felt that the recovery was the key. And I think at times I was trying to play, maybe keep the same team or keep them players playing. But I just felt maybe mentally and physically it was hard for them. And obviously... You know, we didn't have a huge squad um, at Sunderland. So when you brought players in, you were hoping that they were going to perform well in the league games. And um, that always didn't happen. And that's possibly because the lads who had played in the cup games maybe didn't have that energy that was needed to, to, to let them uh, express themselves. So it was a, for me, it was difficult because we had to pick a team. And some for two weeks, we played on a Saturday a Monday, a Thursday and a Saturday for two mm-hmm. weeks. Now, that's a lot of games in two mm-hmm. weeks, seven games, eight games in two weeks. And you have to try and get a team out and get a result. And it was very difficult. Yeah. So the, the FA Cup almost 
put a toll, took a toll on the league form, you know, combining the two. It was, it was tough mentally and physically for the players. It was. And I do think as well, you know, when you're on a, if you're on a cup run, without you realising it, you're probably focusing more on the games in the cup than yeah. you should be in the league. Indeed, yeah, but yeah. It's a bit of a natural thing to do because mm. it's not as if we were a Premier League team and we were in the semi-final of the cup every year or the quarter-finals. You know, we were a division below. Right, I mean, we'll sort of speed along a little bit. So, so you left the club, uh, sort of, I think, less than nine months after the cup final. And, and I mean, that in a way was kind of the high point. It's been pretty rough ever since. They've had oh, yeah. some, some good years in the Premier League, but relegated uh, from the Premier League in 2017, uh, relegated them to, the, um, to League One the season after. Um, come to you then, I'm stay with you, Malcolm. What have you made of it all, watching on as a, as a, as a fan still of the club? It's, it's, been a, it's been a tough, well, last sort of 10 years especially, it's been quite tough for some. Yeah, I mean, all them cup finals that they've been in, you know, playoff finals, I've yeah. been one. Okay. Waiting for them to get promoted or win the checker trade, and it hasn't happened. So, yeah, yeah, you know, that's disappointing. I think a lot of it, um, a lot of it's down to player recruitment. You know, when you see teams who do well, generally they get that player recruitment right. And over the past few years, I don't think Sunderland have managed that very well. At the moment, it's good to see that they are doing well. And they've got a, a young manager who I know, um, mainly because of his father, because I work with his father at Northampton, uh, Gary Johnson. And if mm. his son can get as many promotions as what Gary has yeah, yeah. achieved, then he could be in business. You know, I think Gary's won six or seven promotions. Mm. So um, I, I hope that it goes well for them. And I do feel that they need to get the player recruitment right. I still feel that they could get promoted this year. And if they do get promoted, then I think the club would be in a good position to sort of kick on, you know, because I think they would get the backing of uh, the new owners. And obviously, when you get a crowd like you have at Sunderland, uh, you've always got a chance, you know. But it's, it's the player recruitment that needs to... To be improved. Yeah, well, she said, Lee, so Lee Johnson's Sunderland manager at the moment. As you say, Gary Johnson's son. Sunderland, as of recording, it will probably change by the time this episode actually comes out, but as of recording, Sunderland are <laughs> fifth, uh, fifth in League One, uh, one yeah. point behind Portsmouth, having played 29 games. So they're in, the, um, they're in the playoff zone at the moment. So that's obviously very encouraging. And Nicky, I know we've spoken about this. Um, obviously, you're living you know, hundreds of miles away from Sunderland, but one interesting way you've kept in touch with the club's uh, well, decline, but also kind of upturn uh, as well in a way is, is the fantastic Sun Until I Die documentary um, I watched it all I gorged on it all at the start of lockdown yeah. about a year ago I thought it was absolutely brilliant um, and yeah we, we've talked before before recording this and you said obviously living miles away hard to keep up with what's going on Sunderland, but you followed it almost not entirely but a, a large way through that fantastic documentary yeah it's crazy I sort of devoured it like you say yeah. both seasons as soon as they they came out um it's a hard one because, like you, Sashin, you know, you're, you're always d- drawn. Your job is to watch the big games and the big leagues and keep across, you know, the top five leagues in Europe, Champions League, Europa League, Premier League, and then the Championship. So once they pop down to League One, it's actually quite difficult for me to watch them. Mm. Um, yeah. I've watched all the, their trips to Wembley, um, which maybe I shouldn't and might <laughs> win one. Um like I said, I, I can't watch poorly Catamore cry anymore. <laughs> no, he's not with the club anymore, but I just can't do it to myself. Um, it's heartbreaking. You know, the Charlton 
defeat that goal in the last minute. But yeah, I absolutely loved the Netflix series, and it's it's mad that your club and a club like Sunderland got picked out to be dramatized and produced yeah. and you know put on this platform, which is it's Hollywood, isn't it now? Netflix and watching your team in that dramatic fashion with the with the music mm. and super slow-mos and all these arty shots I mean it's it's bad because the content as dad said he couldn't watch it because it was so depressing and um, <laughs> the content is so saddening but it's also this gripping watch and you've got to turn on yeah. to the next episode and it's like it's produced your team are being produced this story is or is being produced so you tune into the next one and I, I listened to an interview with them um, Josh uh, Madja from who's at Fulham at the moment yeah. he was saying his his decision to go to Bordeaux was hugely dramatized and he said you know it wasn't like that it, it's all told from their their side of the story and I knew they would tell it in that way and I knew they would make me out to be the baddie and you sort of forget while you're watching Sunderland till I die but oh there's real people mm. and real footballers and they're not just there for our entertainment this has happened to them but I think just the beautiful thing that came from that series was the passion of the fans and mm. how amazing the Sunderland fans are. And like dad said, how they just, well, it's in the title, isn't it? Sunderland till I die, they'll just stick by that football club and believe that joy will be coming their way. And fingers crossed with the new 23 year old billionaire, uh, Louis Dreyfus, you know, I think, I think things are going to turn around for them. I've been reading a lot about, how they just want to modernise everything around the club. So if it's their recruitment policies, like Dad said, analytics, social media, they want to get up to speed because it has felt for decades that it's just slap and dash, final minute of transfer deadline day. Who can we spend, who can we blow the bank balance and get in more debt and bring in who's going to save our season? And there needs to be infrastructure. Successful clubs aren't just happening for a reason. Look at... I mean, Liverpool are just on the the biggest scale, but these clubs are successful because they have all the small things in place that then make the big results come. So I just really hope that the the new funding, obviously the fact there's no debt anymore and fans can finally start talking about the football and stop worrying about, you know, the ownership and the debt and the loans and all this this horrible stuff that they've had had to think about for so long. Uh, Mark and Nikki, you've been absolutely brilliant. It's been an absolute treat talking to you. I'm going to ask you one more question before I let you go. Um, so the, normally the final question of this podcast is if you could go back and alter one uh, aspect of your time supporting the club you support, what would you choose? But I'm going to change the final question because it's been a unique episode. So I'm going to have a unique final question. So um, it's going to focus around the 1992 FA Cup run. As, as I said earlier on, it's coming up to 30 years since since it happened. 29 years this May. It'll be 30 years in May 2022. Um, I'll come to you first, Malcolm, and then ask you, Nikki, the same question. What are the standout memories of that? of the FA Cup run in 1992 and sum up if you can what it meant and what it still means to the Crosby family. Um, I know we're going about uh, the Chelsea game, but obviously winning the semi-final was the, was a big turning point for mm. me to actually know you've actually got to a, a cup final was massive, massive. It was fantastic. Disappointing that we couldn't come back out onto the pitch to the supporters, but we fully understood the reason why because it was um, the the um, from the Hillsborough disaster want us to go on the pitch in case the fans got out of hand. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. So we could understand why, 
But that was a disappointment because that would have been a wonderful thing to have gone back out on the pitch. Mm. Um, but yeah, getting getting to the actual getting to the final was the biggest massive massive turning point. Yeah. And what, and what does that all mean to you? As I said, you're, you're, you know, you're Sunderland fan, your family, Sunderland supporters. You've all been part of central to this incredible journey, second division team getting to the FA Cup final and unexpected circumstances. It just still must mean so much to you. Well, it was a, it was a great thing for, for not only for me, but for my wife, Carol, mm. and uh, the, the family. But also, most of my friends were Sunderland supporters. Yeah. And, well, still are. I have season tickets. So that was a great that was a great thing because it was weird for them, you know. They just knew me as like Malk and go for a pint, yeah. play, kick a. But you know, when I played professional, I used to come home and have a game with my mates, and they used to kick lumps out of me. <laughs> they used to try and kill me, you know. And I'd say, "Hang on, I'm like a professional." <laughs> but when we had a game of football, you know, I wanted to win. They used to kick uh, lumps. And I still, I still keep in touch with all of my mates up there, you know. And yeah. I get the same thing every week. They ring me up, or I ring them, and then start on about Sunderland, and we're on the phone for about an hour, mm-hmm. and they're complaining about this, that, and the other. And you're like, you've got to put up with it. But it was a, it was a fantastic thing, you know. You're disappointed that I didn't go on and become as successful as a manager as I would have liked to. But you know, that's 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 down to me. But it was a wonderful thing, and it, it it happened so quickly. That was the thing, you know. I'd mm. gone in in January as caretaker manager, and then in May you're walking out at Wembley to a <laughs> cup final, which was like a little bit, bit surreal to be honest. It was really, yeah. but uh, a, a wonderful experience. And you'll always like sit back and say, "Well, we needed to win," and it's true what they say. Most people they forget who came second. You know, they know who won and forget who comes second. And unfortunately, that's what happened. But uh, it was a wonderful experience. Yeah, I genuinely don't forget who came second in that 1992 FA Cup <laughs> final. That game means a lot to me. I remember everybody involved. I remember Sunderland in that kit. I remember John Byrne. I remember you. Um, so don't worry. As a Liverpool fan, I remember I remember who came second in that game. Um, <laughs> Nicky, same question to you. As I said, nearly nearly 30 years. What are your memories of that FA Cup run? And, and what does it mean? And what has it meant to you, that entire experience as, as a member of the Crosby family? Well, I think it's, it's the reason as, as a family that we're all fallen in how we all fell in love with football um because like you session we work in football but we work in stories and storytelling and we love the stories that come out of football and the the story of dad's Sunland team is a great one and it's one that you know we'll be tell I will tell my son over and over again when he's old enough to hear it and and he will tell his family and they will tell their family what happened with Dad Sunderland team. And living it, I was obviously very, very young, but I'll never forget the those Roker Park nights, the euphoria, the the tears in the family's eyes, what it meant to, to everyone we knew. And Dad talks about when you ask him about that game, and it's always, oh, but I should have won. And if I'd won, who knows? I could have been the next Man United manager. And he loves that line. And um, and also, you also say that if um, our eldest brother, Ian, used to sleep as a baby, you could have played for Man United. <laughs> if someone had won, if my brother had slept, Dad would have been Man United manager or player. So but what he doesn't get is there's not many people who've had a career like Dad's 
playing football for lower league teams like York City, Aldershot, and gone on to to coach. And yes, it might not be in the you know the top level of Premier League for England or whatever. But Dad has never not worked in the game ever since I've been. Well, up until this day, he's always gone out. He's always worked hard. He's always worked for his family. And everyone I meet in the industry always has a great word to say about dad. And they give you that real man, look you in the eye. He's a top man, your dad. He's a top man. Like what a lot of tough sporting, top man, your dad. And wherever I go and whoever I meet in the industry, that's what they say. And that's what I'm most proud of. So you didn't win, but people like you, Dad. So great news. But <laughs> apart from Phil Scolari, didn't have a fight with Phil Scolari. I don't think he likes you, Dad. So um, no, 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 I had a bit of a bust up with him, didn't I? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hang on, you had a bust up with Phil Scolari. How has this only been mentioned at the end of this podcast? Come, we have to hear this story. What, what happened with Big Phil? Well, I was at Middlesbrough and we were playing Chelsea away, and. Um, about three or four times he kept jumping up on the touchline and trying to get player sent off, sent off yeah. the card. So I had a, had words with him. I can't remember what he said, something about off or something. And uh, got to a bit of a heated argument, to be honest. But then he had some kind of bouncer in the tunnel waiting <laughs> for me. He came down at half time. And uh, I thought, well, I better give it a miss. Yeah, yeah, he was out of order. I hate that when people show the card and want them yeah, yeah, yeah. sent off. It's disrespectful to the, to the to the opposition, and that's what he was. And the just <laughs> one thing, Sachin, I want to just say before I leave, I want to give you my favourite all-time player for Sunderland, Jim Baxter. He was absolutely my hero. I loved him to bits. I saw him play, make his debut with Sunderland, scored two against Sheffield United, and he was... He played for Rangers, as you know, because yeah. he was a top, top player. But I think he liked a pint by all accounts. <laughs> and mm-hmm. he ended up having a pub. I think, he, well, he passed away a few years ago now, but what a wonderful player he was. But uh, it's great to talk about football. And you, when, when you've been in it as long as I have, you meet some... I had a bust up with Kalari, but the amount of people that you meet in the game who are really wonderful people, you know... Mm. As we were talking earlier about people like Kevin Keegan and Ronnie Moran and Graham Souness and all these people that you've been lucky enough to meet. Gareth Southgate, who I work with, you know, he's a wonderful fella, Gareth. And um, I was at Middlesbrough with him. You meet so many, you meet more good people than you'd ever do bad in football, for me. I've been very fortunate. Absolutely. Well, going back to Jim Baxter, he was a yeah a Scottish footballing legend. And Malcolm, I don't think it's underestimation to say you are a Sunderland legend. And it's been absolute privilege on to speak to you and Nicky today. Um, Malcolm and Nicky, thank you very much. Thank you, Sasin. Thank you very much. Pleasure. On the river where they used to build the boats, by the harbour wall, the place you love the most. I can see you there alone, but are you known? I'll be there soon. All your life you worked your fingers to the bone. You worked hard for every little thing you own. 
But you gave away for years as if you'd known They were cold and out But if you could see me now And if you could see me now I hope that I'm making you proud I hope that I'm making you